Hello and welcome. I'm Joe Matthews, a California columnist and editor at Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free, everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org and on all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like it, follow us or subscribe. For my Zocalo column, Connecting California, I roam around the state. I've learned that while California is a very big place, many of its greatest wonders are in our small towns. I'm speaking to you now from the city of Taft, population 9,000 in the southwestern San Joaquin Valley, where I'm reporting a column for a series on rural California that we're publishing with the partnership of the California Wellness Foundation. Tonight's event, What Makes a Good Small Town, is another piece of the Zocalo California Wellness Foundation partnership. And tonight's moderator, Diana Markham, is herself a California wonder. She writes brilliantly about our small towns and rural areas for the Los Angeles Times. In 2015, she won the Pulitzer Prize for narrative portraits of farm workers, farmers, and others right here in the Central Valley. She's the author of The Tenth Island, Finding Joy, Beauty, and Unexpected Love in the Azores. Over to you, Diana. Thank you, Joe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, What Makes a Good Small Town? And thank you to Zocola Public Square and the California Wellness Foundation for presenting our conversation. I'm excited to introduce you to tonight's panelists. Renee Mendez has been the Gonzales City Manager for over 17 years. In 2019, Gonzales was awarded the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Culture of Health Prize. He's the former Inyo County Administrator and a graduate of Duke University Master of Arts Program for Public Policy. Megan Beeming Jacinto is the co-founder of Mujeres Advancing Leadership Advocacy and Success. She's also the founding attorney at Beeman Jacinto Law PC and a Coachella City Council member. She previously worked for CRLA. Christopher Cabaldon spent 11 years as mayor of West Sacramento from 1998 to 2020. He's a former Hazel Kramer Endowed Chair and Professor of Public Policy and administrator at CSU Sacramento. Christopher is also partner at Capital Impact, a multidisciplinary consulting firm. Thank you so much for being here tonight. So my, my first question is to kind of pinpoint what it is we're talking about when we talk about a small town. Renee and I talked and I just kind of threw out 30,000 when I was throwing around what I thought of as a small town. And he said he'd be pretty hard pressed to consider a town of 30,000 a small town. But Christopher, West Sacramento is 53,000 people and we have you on a, on a panel for small towns. And Megan, you're in Coachella, which is what, 50,000? even though you have a lot of experience working in places like Thermal that are only a thousand. So I'm just gonna go down the list and you tell me what it is you think we're talking about tonight. Renee, what's your definition of a small town? Before we get to how to make them better. Definition of a small town, I believe is, I know we talked about 30,000. You know, to me, something less than that is a small town. There's a lot of those, Towns with that population. And I think it's, but more importantly, is the connection people make and the ability to maintain those connections uh, and the intimacy. So, hopefully, you know, maybe 40, 50,000 you can maintain that. And I think that's really the key to a small town is the ability to maintain the intimate connections. Mm 
So Maybe. I would say under 30. Oh. Okay. You say you'd say a lot under 30. You said you'd be hard pressed. Yes, <laughs> and I, I came around to your way of thinking. Megan, what do you think? Well, I'm gonna respond the way I think I'll respond to a lot of questions tonight, which is to say I think it depends who you ask. Um, I'm comfortable with the less than 30,000 benchmark tonight, although two of us uh, represent larger towns or cities than that. And I'll say um, in a lot of places, a town or a city of 30,000 would be considered a pretty good size, bigger city. Um, but I know in California, uh, that's that's not necessarily the perspective that we have here. So it depends. Christopher? Yeah, I, I agree with with both. Uh, in the among the mayor's group, there is a definition. So the it, and it's at exactly that thirty thousand uh, threshold. But I think uh, you know the the number aside, because uh, it is relative. Um, and you know, if you sit next to the city of Los Angeles and you have eighty thousand people and they have three or four million, uh, you, you know, small town is just a bit socially constructed. <laughs> it's like, what do I think of myself? But what does everybody else around me say? They all say, oh yeah, you're just a small town. That's telling you something. But I think one, one marker, at least for me, because my city was 28,000 when I became mayor uh, 20 years ago, and now it's, now it's 53, is, uh, is, is this one. If, you meet, if, you, if somebody comes and testifies at a city council meeting and your first, your first uh, 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 thought in your head is, oh, that's Diana. She's the third grade teacher. Or oh, that's my cousin's. Uh, that's my cousin's ex-girlfriend, or whatever. As opposed to that's Diana on behalf of some organization with five five hundred thousand members. You know, you're in a you're in a town. Uh, if you have some connection, more more know them in more than one role. Yeah, there's this sense that that civic dialogue is a is a dialogue among people among people like as individuals who have relations with one another that that as opposed to like for, social forces alone or organizations alone. That's interesting. There's someone else who agrees with you more or less. Um, when they announced this topic, I don't know who Gene Koch is, but I hope he's watching tonight and I'm really grateful to him because he tweeted an article about what Aristotle thought about small towns. So <laughs> I wanna read you guys this. Aristotle's main criterion for deciding whether your polis had gotten too big is whether or not, quote, the citizens should know each other and know what kind of people they are. Renee, can you tell me if uh, your town, Gonzales, meets that criteria? Uh, I think it most definitely does. Uh, you know, we, we talked and you'll see it in a lot of our uh, literature and our website, the Gonzales Way of Love, Care and Connect. And that came about very organically. And it's, it's, it's what the town, when you ask the town, why do we do something? Well, this is the way we always do it, the Gonzales Way. So I think that's a perfect definition is love, care, and connect. And uh, you're really together. Not doesn't mean you always agree, but you're you're together and you are able to work through some issues. Um, is it kind of a be careful what you wish for thing when you want that closeness and knowing each yes. other? Yes, yes. <laughs> Would you I mean, absolutely yes. examples? <laughs> absolutely. We had, um, I think I mentioned to you, we had this, what I thought was this, great multifamily housing project. And, you know, we went by the book, we followed all the process, we noticed, and literally, you know, a couple of weeks before the meeting to unveil it and put out the construction schedules and so forth, the community came out against it. And, and some members of the community, and it was an uncomfortable conversation, but um, we had the conversation. 
and they felt that they were connected with their council members and the mayor. I'm sure the mayor and council members can appreciate that when, you know, they were getting uh, personal friends, relatives, you know, teachers of their kids and all of that was really uh, reaching out. So it was a very uncomfortable conversation, but we worked through it. But, but the connection made it, allowed us to work through those issues. And you were having that conversation with people you knew. Correct. We were having people we knew, you know, all of a sudden somebody that you thought you never had had any really major disagreements were, were really like, it was an emotionally charged uh, several, a lot for about a month, a lot of meetings, a lot of discussion in the community, wherever you went, it was being discussed at the liquor store, at the barbershop, you know, in the post office, it, it just was being discussed. And it's not just at city council, you're going to have to deal with that conversation yes. when you pick up your kid from school yes. or when you go get a beer. Yes, the dentist. <laughs> well, and I think I, I'm, I'm think uh, the mayor and the council member here can attest to that. They're, they're never off, it's 24 hours a day. If they're out, you know, you're, you're always on in your community. So absolutely everywhere the conversation was happening. Okay, a follow-up, real, real follow-up, quick follow-up question for Renee, and then I'll move on. How big do you think Gonzalez can get? And, you know, when I talked to you earlier, you have such a palpable love for your town. Um, and you do seem to know everybody. How much bigger can you get before you lose that? That's an excellent question. Um, West Sacramento, I think, is dealt with that and uh, I actually grew in Riverbank when I moved there was 5,000 people not over 22 23,000 you know I don't know I don't I don't think I have a great answer to that question I think as we continue to grow just make sure we maintain those connections and continue sorry try to, try to reach out there uh to see if we can make it work so maybe 30 okay so, and maybe it's not about numbers but a certain kind of thing um Christopher. So I live in Fresno. And when I first moved there, they love to say it was the biggest small town in California. And I, I didn't know what that meant. But then I, as I kind of saw how many generations people had known each other and how interconnected the place was in a lot of ways, there's no way I'm calling Fresno a small town, but I kind of understood that they had started as a small town and still saw themselves that way. So how, was West Fresno, did it go through that kind of thing? I mean, do you really still consider it a small town or is it a city that still has some of the, the strengths and um, the things that make a small town different or special? Yeah, it's, you know, it's both, right? The, in, in, in fact, sometimes we, we talk about our, our objective to be a small town vibe with big city amenities. Right, that that uh, you know we want to, we're we're right next to the city of Sacramento, so we're not we're not a rural small town, um, and so we're constantly uh, affected by their 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 culture, with the Ireland to their you know to their United Kingdom in in some ways, and it has changed, right? But also the growth, and I think this generation of leadership has also revealed that the interconnectedness that we feel isn't always completely real, right? Not 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 that those connections aren't real but that there's a, a whole lot of other communities inside the community um, that aren't part of that, um, that, that you, may, you may miss when you only have 8,000 people or when we had 28,000 people say, oh, I'll go to the Rotary Club 
and the chamber banquet and I'll go to the friends of the library dinner and the Ducks Unlimited uh, scholarship awards. <laughs> and I, I will run yeah, into yeah. everybody. I'll run into literally everybody. But I wasn't really running into, you know, recent immigrants from Laos. I wasn't really running into to folks in the in the Ukrainian community who had to develop their own social institutions. And so as you get bigger, I think it's important as a, if you want to stay a small town, you have leadership and community groups and everyone has to keep vocalizing and living that norm, but also you have to like really look at it through clear-eyed glasses. Okay, now that we're a little bigger, maybe I can get a bird's eye view and say, ah, not everybody's a part of this tight-knit community that we thought. Yeah, that's interesting. I was I was reading more of that Aristotle piece and they, you know, they were worried about how open they could be and not have people come over the gates and attack them. And I thought the, the new version of that is, you know, how can you retain a sense of community and a sense of where this thing, we have this identity and still be open to newcomers, still be open to new cultures. Um, Megan, I think you can talk about this almost better than anybody. She grew up in a, in a small town, Earlham, did I say it right? Yes, you did. And um, how many people when you were growing up? It was around 1,300 population as I was growing up. And how would you describe it? Oh, wow. Um, it is a very rural community. Um, the closest city is Des Moines, which is about 30 miles away. Um, it has one gas station, one grocery store, one bar, one stop sign, I think, maybe two stop signs now. Um, so, Sort of physically, that's how I could describe it for you. Okay, and and the people that live there? Uh, well, the town is very um, closely connected. Still, I'm not as 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 connected as I used to be growing up. Um, it is home to many people and families who have been there for several generations. Um, it is very homogenous racially uh, and also politically. Um, it's, it's very rooted in agriculture uh, and takes that as a source of pride, but then also at the same time, very influenced by the agricultural industry's power and politics. And now you're in a city who's also very homogenous, right? That's right. In a much different way, the city of Coachella is uh, racially very ho homogenous. We're about 97% Latino. Um, and I would say that is changing, sort of similar to what Christopher was saying a moment ago. I think Coachella is in really a, a pretty major transition uh, in terms of, you know, its smallness, so to speak. We've grown substantially, probably doubled in population in the past 15 years or so, uh, and are continuing to grow faster than any other town or city nearby. And I think as we do that, um, we're having this struggle where uh, I think there's a difficulty in adjusting the mindset of who is from Coachella or who is who who's Coachella made of, who really is from Coachella and, and who isn't. You know, there's some of these conflicts and ways of thinking that uh, present challenges to us as leaders and, and, and community leaders to um, use new approaches and, and more inclusive uh, approaches to building our city and incorporating all of its growing population. And do you, a follow-up question, do the people who live there, do they, 
do they dream of becoming Palm Springs or do they want to be the best? You know, I mean, do they want to be a bigger community? And I'll get, like, does, I'll get to you too, Christopher. I mean, do they want to be that bigger city that's just down the road or has, you know, a little more flash, a little more things, or do they want to, to keep it what it is? Yeah, so my mind goes a few places with that question. Um, one is, you know, there is a way of thinking in Coachella um, that I shared to some extent, which is that, you know, as we develop Coachella into the future, we want to ensure that it's preserving spaces and culture and history for the people that live there now. Um, and at the same time, we have about 70% of our city is agricultural, uh, undeveloped, so to speak, agricultural land that's really ripe for development. Um, and that could present good opportunities for our city and for our residents, or it could pre present obstacles and challenges if the development occurs in, in a way that you know, substantially changes our city or even pushes some of our residents out. And as we look at you know, the region in which we exist, there's really a lot of disparity between, you know, the working class neighborhoods of Coachella and, you know, even, even um, more working class neighborhoods of, you know, Thermal, Mecca, and some of the unincorporated communities as they're compared to the, some of the wealthiest zip codes in the entire state and Indian Wells. In and right down the road, right? and Rancho Mirage and Palm Springs. And so sometimes as we're thinking about what's next for Coachella, you know, the, the, the gaze goes toward those, you know, luxurious communities to the west of us as if that would be a goal or a benchmark. Um, and, and it could be in some ways, but that could also present a risk for our residents. So we have to be really careful in balancing those, those thoughts and those dreams. Right. And if anybody's watching who isn't from California or doesn't know Southern California, the places that she's talking about are are very uh, rural, agricultural. It's 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 a hard life a lot of times. And just down the road is some of the greatest wealth in California. We're talking, you know, huge sprawling hotels and resorts, the Coachella Festival, which I'm sure is beginning to change things. Um, Christopher. Does West Sacramento, when, when you were little, when, not you, the town, when the town was smaller, because you were mayor for so long. I mean, you, you, you saw that transition. Did the town want to be Sacramento or did it always say, we want to keep an identity as a separate thing that, that we are? So like, like so much in, I may probably all of politics, but certainly in small towns, both. <laughs> it was like you know the, the so if you know if you asked if you asked our, our residents uh, 20 years ago yes we want to we want to we want places to shop we want a riverfront that's alive we want a downtown we want all these things and we also don't and we also don't want to change <laughs> at all so so i think there are very few places very few small towns that want to grow just to grow it's as megan says it's like it's how do we what what do we what can, what, what do we do to make life better for the residents who are already here so I think that's been part of our like our, our challenge and our and I think where we've where we've had a good amount of success is like keeping those together constantly checking like we're not we're not trying to be the fastest growing city in California we're trying to grow just enough in order to meet the needs of our people and to start to attract some of those minutes so now you can shop here now you can go to the waterfront now we have a downtown um, 
but I don't think anybody, anybody that wants to a, a Sacramento a living experience can easily and will just move to Sacramento. And it's right there. I mean, I can see it from, uh, no right Palin, the river, I can yeah. see it from my house. Um, it's not that far. And so if, if uh, everything that Sacramento has to offer, we have here, even as mayor, I often like say to other folks, if you could, if you could, if you could choose any place to be a mayor, the ideal place is a smaller, medium-sized city or town right next to a big city. Um, because uh, a lot of the major infrastructure, a lot of the like, a lot of the like, hey, let's spend a million, a hundred million dollars on subsidies to attract a big new employer or whatever. I, I can't do that. That's a, totally mm -hmm. impossible. So they don't even bother. Nobody bothers me with stuff like that. I can dr kind of draft behind the big cities when it matters, but really focus on creating, uh, on maintaining and building out a, a livable small town place. Um, so it's, it, in some ways, I think for both governing and for living, it's the best of both worlds. That, that's interesting. So I have to confess as a writer, that's the kind of towns I like are the ones that have a lot of space around them. You know, that as a writer, what's interesting are these, uh, these little towns that are often out in the middle of nowhere. But Christopher, you brought up a really interesting thing. I see the disparity, you know, it's so hard for them to get any kind of help from the outside. I mean, you're on your own. If you happen to be a stable town with a good city government, great. But we have, you know, we have towns in California where there's been small fiefdoms going on for years. You know, there are towns that I go to that I don't think any time of the year I haven't seen recall signs. It's, they are whatever they are and no one's coming to save them. Um, but don't, but I, I do think you you know it's uh, like every every kind of place like that you that you've described it has has a natural advantage and a natural disadvantage both both at the same time as as Megan said it depends and so for a lot of us smaller towns is that we have the advantage of that of being able to be nimble like we don't have a lot of a big bureaucracy if we want to do something I know I know Renee does this I've done this too you just like you just walk into city hall and you just like yell open the your office door and start yelling hey <laughs> hey y'all we're gonna we're, you know we're gonna deliver broadband to everybody or we're gonna you know launch universal preschool let's just like go out and do it now you can't do three or four of those things at a time when you're a small town but you could marshal everybody and yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying like the ones that had good leaders and had a good core they could really do stuff, but if it wasn't there, they were in. Well, right, because because the flip side of that is, if I wanted to work on on a climate change topic in a big city, it might be a battle between the oil and gas industry on one side and the environmentalists on the other side. And but I'm the problem I might face is there's only four other members of the city council, and and I need three of their votes, and two of them hate each other because one of them stole their prom date in high school. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, so that, I mean, the small towns like uh, you, if, you. If you're lucky, you can be you can be as nimble and as um, activist in some ways, uh, it, more so than a big city. But if you're unlucky, you're 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 trapped um, in in that like very dysfunctional uh, kind of kind of politics. Okay, follow up question: Was the prom date story true? Uh, not that, not in that, not, not the current city council. I'll at least just say that, not the current city council. <laughs> at some point, Renee, um, he mentioned being nimble, and and you seem pretty proud that you guys can kind of rock and roll and do your own things. Uh, so, something that everyone was dealing with this last year was the pandemic and a lot of um, a lot of mental health issues, especially for young people. So can you kind of walk us through how 
how these big, huge issues that deal that everyone's dealing with are different when you're dealing with them in a small town. What what did you guys do when you knew your kids were in trouble because of the stress of the pandemic? Uh, so <clears throat> I think the approach might be a little different, might be a little quicker, like the mayor talked about. Um, you don't have to go through a lot of hoops to get something done. Um, but I think the key is to have partnerships. So one of the advantages, you know, we're 10 miles, 50 miles from Salinas, which is the largest town in, this, in Monterey County in the Central Coast at over 150,000 people, is maintaining the relationships and cultivating partnerships to be able to address issues when they come up. And the mental health issue here uh, hit us like it hit everybody, everybody in the country. And what happened, our, our youth counselor and our youth leadership really rallied around that. Uh, we haven't had a couple of unfortunate things happen uh, to young folks. It turned right. out to be good. Particular incidences, right? Yes. Like people were in trouble. Right. People were in trouble, but we responded. It kind of galvanized. But it galvanized at different levels. Our young people really galvanized around what can we do? How can we reach out? How can we support? And so, you know, we did the surveys. We reached out. We did a, we did a lot of programs. And we're kind of creating this wraparound mental health approach to our community. The other thing that we did very quickly is both our council and our school board came together and agreed to jointly fund a licensed clinical social worker and those types of to, uh, positions to bring, to have that asset ready here, uh, to have it more available for young people in our community. Uh, so we studied and then based on that, a couple meetings and we uh, activated around some real concrete um, uh, approaches to really try to deal but with these this. These were the kids themselves, right? These were the kids themselves. Our youth council, they're the ones that. How old are they? Excuse me? How old would you say their age range is? Uh, 14 to 17. And you gave them that, you gave them the autonomy, you gave them the power? Yes. I mean, they, they, they participate within the structure of city government and the school, uh, but they have the ability to bring forward recommendations uh, to discuss them with the council, to provide, you know, their perspectives. Uh, and then, um, you know, we take action if the council feels it's something we need to do. But, I mean, do you think they were heard more than they would have been heard in a larger town? Do you think it was different? You know, I don't have a real perspective on that. I don't think so. Uh, I think it's what, I mean, the mayor talked about maintaining the connections, right? I mean, being intentional about, continue to maintain those connections. So I think if you do, um, I don't know when that stops. I don't know if it's 100,000, 150, 200,000, 50,000. Uh, but I think if you do that, you can continue to grow and still maintain those connections. We're dealing with a, a significant growth project right now and the community is supportive, but also concerned about how do we maintain our field, the Gonzalez Way, the small town, um, because we, we do, towns need some growth to be able to provide the vision that the community wants as far as things, whether schools, whether well, that idea is the Gonzalez way that, you know, some towns, they have the such and such way and it can be pretty exclusionary, you know, it's excluding a lot of people. Do you, do you think that the Gonzalez way is going to keep other people that, that don't traditionally live there out or are feeling uncomfortable? I don't think so. If the Gonzalez ways me love, care, and connect, which is kind of the little 
You're hoping that's universal. Yeah, yeah we're, well, yeah, we're hoping. Uh, but it's it's almost like when you're growing a plant, right? You have to nurture. You have to put water in it. You have to uh, continue to maintain and fertilize or clip the dead the dead leaves and stuff like that. I think it, it applies. I, mean, I don't know that popped into my brain, but it applies to as you're growing the town. Mm -hmm. right? You can't okay. assume things are always going to be there. Right. Now, Megan, with your work, I mean, you've worked with CRLA, so so you're out in communities that might not even be incorporated. You're out where people really are a little bit on, it's up to their own devices. They're, they're kind of on their own for even, even basics, like how to get water to drink. Um, can you kind of talk about how small is maybe too small and what the challenges there are? Yeah, again, uh, you know, I wouldn't assign any numbers to that, but I think it's it has to do with a lot of factors. And the communities that I work in as an advocate, uh, the unincorporated Eastern Coachella Valley communities in particular, are very low resource um, and really distance from uh, the, even the infrastructure that exists or that would ostensibly cover them as a jurisdiction. A lot of these communities um, have been formed in rural agricultural areas simply because there is a lack of affordable housing or housing at all for the farm worker population uh, that, that serves the enormous agricultural industry here. And so over time, um, farm workers and, and farm worker families have had to come up with their literally their own way of building housing in, in this area. A lot of that has taken the form of unpermitted and um, informal uh, mobile home parks sort of spotting the entire rural Eastern Coachella Valley. There's about 135 of them now. And each one is different, both in size and resources and so forth. But, you know, they share a lack of what would be common services in a bigger small town. <laughs> uh, most of them are not connected to the municipal water district, even though it's part of the, the water district's jurisdiction. Most of those communities um, do not have access to septic systems and are relying on really inadequate and formal sewage um, systems, for lack of a better term. And then, you know, just the biggest obstacle, I guess I would say, for those very small, isolated communities is the cost of investing resources because it costs more per person, for example, to extend water lines into a community of 115 people than it would if that was a larger city or, or a larger small town. And so you'll hear from the jurisdictions and from the state and from the funders, you know, it's, is it worth it to them to spend that kind of money to only reach a certain number of people. And that's a really big challenge. And then on the other hand, there's no, there's no bureaucracy, there's no city, there's nobody really watching how they solve the problem. So, right. are, so you, are you a fan of, of, of being a small town as opposed to being a community? Like, do you think there's an advantage? Um, you know, there are definite pros to being in a small community and in a rural community or even outside of a community on your own ranch or your own uh, piece of land, right? There's, there are pros uh, to all of those situations and there are also challenges to all of them. 
And, um, you know, a lot of the residents of the rural unincorporated Eastern Coachella Valley choose to live there because they want to live in more rural uh, settings that preserve their own personal values and, and ways of life. Um, but, you know, even if it's a, a choice to be there, and that's not the case for everyone, it presents a substantial amount of challenges. And when the challenges have to do with people's health in terms of the contamination in the water or the air, um, or the lack of um, ability to recreate and so forth, um, it, it becomes a, a difficult a difficult way of life and also sort of a difficult problem to solve. And, you know, for those unincorporated communities, they do have a government or they do have a, ju a jurisdiction that should be watching over them. And that's the County of Riverside in this case. Um, but they're very, um, they're isolated communities without a lot of political power. And so in order to get the attention that's needed to really solve some of these big problems, there has to be, you know, a huge advocacy push or some other type of political support and power to really get it before the board of supervisors or the, or the other county administration um, to find the solutions that are needed. And short of that, which is often the case, the communities have been really innovative in seeking out and implementing some of their own solutions. You know, with the example I gave earlier, the formation of all of these mobile home uh, affordable communities, I guess you could call them, but we've also developed some of the first point of use community water filtration systems in the state. Uh, we worked with the Department of Public Health to develop the regulations that would permit those, and then we installed the first two here in Thermal and Mecca. Uh, we also worked with the State uh, Public Utilities Commission to develop new regulations for mobile home utility provisions where previously it was unregulated. So we look for those, you know, how can we get around what would be traditional solutions and find some others, even if they're interim, uh, to really get to the problems or challenges that we're facing. So are we kind of, let's see if we can, can come with some ideas on how to, how to make a we're trying to think how to make a town a good one. So water would, would be the key. I mean, this is California, like drinkable water. Is that the baseline then? Or what, what would you say, Renee? I think water, depending on where you are in the state, broadband is another huge issue in this day and age. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so I think particularly the idea after the, you know, the last year and a half in the pandemic, right? Really brought a lot of these issues to the forefront. Uh, so broadband for thing, right? Well, it, it is, but it's, but Renee is the, Renee is the champion on, on the broadband. Oh yeah? Issue. Yeah, I mean, what, what Renee's done in Gonzalez on, on broadband is, is uh, I mean, it's a big national story. Uh, and I, 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 it's where well, I first met him. He doesn't have to brag on himself. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the, so uh, in, in Gonzales, it's, you know, the, the, it's, it's not a big city. And so you can, in a smaller town, you can imagine actually solving a problem. In a big city, you're like, hey, you know, let's, let's adopt a, you know, a 25-year plan to do X or whatever. But in a small town, it's like, I, we, we, we're going to have something else to work on next week. Uh, so we, whatever we're going to do, we need to do it right now. And we need, and we can't leave people behind because, uh, you know, if, if the family that I leave behind, their mom happens to be the, the coach of the soccer team, my kid's not going to get put in the game. So, you know, we're not we're not leaving anybody out of the solutions. And so what you saw in, in Gonzalez was an, was an, like a really bold 
um, attempt to do that with small town tools, like we can move quickly and, and, and uh, the community's ready to organize itself and volunteer, but also with the big city tools, like we're gonna, we're gonna contest um, regulatory actions at the state level that no, no one's gonna see this coming and nobody did. Um, and Gonzalez you know, was the lever where a lot of other folks had given up. Gonzalez was too small to know that it was impossible. <laughs> I love that too. I think that's what I, I, we we were doing. Uh, you know, kind of similar work. We we, we launched a universal preschool like eighteen years ago, and we we should have known better. It's not, that's just not you don't do that as a small as a small city. And we 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 did free college. We were one of the first ones. Every single high school senior in West Sacramento is automatically admitted to college now. We're the first in the country. But most of that's because one okay, we're, we can do it fast, and then we have to move on to something else because we have other problems <laughs> and other opportunities. And we don't know better. And I do think, you know, the, the, the kind of thinking to your question, I think part of the part of the challenge when you were asking, like, is it water or is it something else? Is that in a in a big city, like I know I know a bunch of big city mayors and they do exactly this. It's like, OK, what are my top 10 priorities for the year? What I'm going to work on is this, this, this and that. But in a small town, it's like I know what all the problems are. What was really going to be like, what is the what is this week's opportunity? OK, this foundation announced a grant and they have a category just for small towns. So maybe I could apply for that. Or this law is about to expire. It's my one chance. Or this company wants a rezoning. Um, or the trash company contract is up and I might be able to you know, get another $100,000 of cash out of them. Right? So when you're a small town city official, city manager or mayor or city council member, you're really, you're, you're, you, like the things you can make progress on are partly based on what you need, but also partly like what is the opportunity set that you happen to encounter? Because you don't, you don't make the universe when you're in a small town. So what are the things that can most change life for people that live in a small town then? Um, Megan? Well, you asked, you know, a moment ago about whether it's water or maybe it's broadband. I think in order to be a good small town or even a good community of any size, you know, everyone should have those type of basic services and the act, you know, the 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 access to water, access to housing and electricity, those are, in my view, basic human rights. And so where we don't have that, it's not only not a good small town, it's, you know, an inhumane place that's really being left behind. And we have a lot of work to do in those communities. So and it is that has to be a baseline. State and Right. I mean, there's there's global laws, but yet we have so many towns in California that don't have drinking water. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and that's not only in California That's another challenge that I shared growing up in in rural Iowa. Um, so, I mean, those are some baselines that every as a matter of human dignity and, and probably international law, every community, every place should have. But as we think about, you know, what do we need to make a good small town above and beyond those uh, basic, basic needs? Yeah. Yeah, basic needs. I, you know, I really relate to what Christopher and Renee are saying in terms of our uh, ability to sort of address things in a much quicker way than we would be able to in bigger cities. Um, that nimbleness is is very important, but it also grows out of the relationships that we have within our small towns, you know, without those relationships and without our connection to the community, we wouldn't be able to act in such a quick way. Um, and I think that's really important for, for us as a small town. And it's something that we have to, as we're going through this transition, I think in Coachella, it's something we have to work really hard to try to preserve uh, so that we are able to continue to, to build in that way. 
Yeah, because some of our, uh, and some of my big, my bigger city neighbors, um, they they kind of see us sometimes, not as much anymore, but they've often seen us as like a, a set of, a basket of problems. Like your 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 city's poorer, it's more rural, uh, has more immigrants and farm workers, and it has yeah. had a gang issue in the past. And so, you know, surely you must be working on that 24 hours a day. And I'm like, I, it's always on my mind for looking for opportunities for solutions. But if you ask the residents in our community, there's like, their, 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 their question on Thursday is, what is there to do on Saturday with my kid, with my granddaughter, right? Yeah. So, we, you know, we don't, we don't live this life of like, like every moment is all of our, all of our social and environmental ills. We know that they're there and we're like always looking for a chance to fix them. And so, and we, and we sometimes get big breakthroughs, but we're all just living life. And, and you expect your city in particular uh, to be, to, to be delivering on, on parks and everything else in addition to the, which what are as Megan and you both described are the very much the basics. Yeah, that's one thing I really like about small towns. I mean, a, a lot of the towns that I've written about all read other coverage and it'll talk about how this is the poorest place in California. This is where there is the most crime. And my own personal memories will be so different because I'm like, oh, that's where they have that yearly party and every family comes and it, you know, there is that incredible grasping of what, it, you know, of what joy you have and what's there, at least to me. Um, Renee, you, I've never met somebody who, well, I have <laughs> met a lot of people that like where they live, but you, you really seem to like it. So yeah. have you lived anywhere other than Gonzalez? Yeah. Um, before here, I was in Bishop, California, which is, I was County Minister. It's not a big town either. You know, the entire population of Inyo County is under 20,000 people at the time. So very large county land-wise. I grew up, I mean, I was born in Patterson, California, which is a small town. Uh, then I moved, we moved to Riverbank, which at the time was 5,000 people. Um, when I went away to school and other things, I lived in bigger communities. Uh, but yes, I mean, small towns have a way of sort of grabbing you. When I moved here, my two kids were very young, three years and six months. So this is their hometown. And this does Gonzalez have a center? I mean, do you do you have like a center of town? It's our downtown. It's okay. our, do you think that's how is it key to a town to have a cultural center to yes. have somewhere that everybody goes? And, and our school, our school systems. And I think one of the things I want to add to kind of what one of the things that's needed for a town, a small town, and I think both the councilor and mayor has spoken to this is creating this sense of opportunity and possibility. Mm -hmm. Just because we're a small town doesn't mean that we don't have that. And, you know, the parks, the schools, everything feeds into that. But it's really the sense of the potential, the possibility, the opportunity um, that I and think is there, also something. Do you think other people moving to your town would have that sense of optimism and possibility, even if they didn't look like the people that have always lived there or don't speak the same language or... I, based on my experience here, it has been people that move here do. They, they're moving here because of that. Are uh, you seeing some diversity in Gonzales? Excuse me? Are you seeing more diversity in Gonzales? We're seeing diversity in age. So we're, we're getting young and experience or background. You know, we're starting to get more folks that have gone to higher education, the young professionals, just because of the quality of life issues. They, they, you know, we're starting to see, they want to maintain those connections. A lot of our, our, our mayor, our current mayor, Mayor Rios, 
uh, like to say, if you just added every young, every graduate, you know, 170 graduate a year for the last 15 years, how can we, we want them back, but what do they have to come back to if we don't have the houses or what they're, you know, we celebrate them going on to college or going on to their careers, but we want them to come back. What will they come back to? You want housing, you want, you want jobs. housing, and so, so there's the tension. That's right? the taste of a good test of a good small town is whether people want their kids to leave, get out, never come back, or whether they hope they can come make a life. Right. And I think that's the issue. We're trying to make that so create that opportunity. Yeah, in California, our small towns, uh, they depend a lot on the relationship to the big towns that are nearby, the big town. I mean, you're right across from Sacramento, but I mean, Megan, you've got this huge musical festival. Coachella is bringing in just so many people and so much money. And I have seen like, um, you know, farmhouses and thermal renting for $5,000 a night. I don't know if anybody bit. Does that, <laughs> Does that change things? Um, you know, I think that, first of all, the Coachella Fest is in Indio, um, just to dispel Very any close, though, yeah. <laughs> any <laughs> mythical um, thoughts that people ha may have who are watching. It's in Indio, which is close by to Coachella. Um, and I do it drive-wise? What was that? I mean, how far? It's like, what, a 15? How many? How long does it take to drive? Yeah. just depends where you are, but it could be 10 or 10 or 20 minutes. It's a bordering city. Um, but, you know, as the Coachella Fest has grown, I think it's provided a lot more benefit for the already existing resort cities who had that, you know, infrastructure to absorb tourism and to receive tourism um, in their hotels and their you know, Airbnbs and so forth. Yes, some of the residents of Coachella and even some of the unincorporated uh, communities have here and there been able to rent out their houses, but by and large, the benefits of that festival have stayed with the festival cities and the, the resort cities. Uh, again, because of the lack of infrastructure in our smaller towns and our rural towns to be able to absorb the party goers, uh, who are looking for a certain type of environment and a certain type of lifestyle while they're here. So it, it's completely separate. There's not been like a culture change. It's still this real divide. It's largely separate. Um, and while, you know, we're talking about some of the things that we can do quickly in small cities, but one thing that we've been doing over a long term is really building up the public arts uh, in Coachella and building up some of the cultural uh, events that will draw visitors from outside the city in a different way than in the resort cities. And as we build that, we're hoping that we can, you know, also absorb some of the substantial investment that comes into the valley during those music festival weekends. But that is a longer process because of the lack of resources and lack of infrastructure that we have. So Christopher, um, what's the most, in, you said like the greatest thing about small towns is that they don't know what can't be done. What's the most innovative things you've seen a small town do? Well, I, I actually have to put Gonzalez in, in, in on that list, and I and I, and I have even when Renee's not in the room. Um, uh, uh, so that, I mean, that's that is definitely one of those uh, big examples. But there are small towns that sort of invented some of uh, much of the urban farm movement accidentally, 
we were part of that, but we weren't the we weren't the first one. But urban farms are one of these great examples because urban farms in most cities, at, when when the idea first came out, were illegal, right? They're, they violate the zoning. You're talking about having it in your front yard, growing the vegetables, uh, or more like a a part a piece of, of like abandoned property in in the urban oh, okay. core. Um, and, and you'd say, well, you know, folks want to farm there and grow, grow produce and or, and or in our case, they wanted to train new farmers. And we said, that's a great idea. And it's also illegal because you can't do agriculture in the residential zones. Now, uh, this was a good example because a large city nearby us, wink, wink. Um, and we both had the idea and the inspiration at the same time. Um, hey, we want to do more of these. It's a great idea. You get healthier produce. You clean up a uh, 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 blighted property, like all, all good things, help train new farmers. Um, and they did what a big city normally does. Let's convene a task force and let's commission several studies to analyze the impacts of what would happen if we did this. Okay. And then charge the people who want to do an urban farm in order to do that. We said, look, we can't, we don't have the time or the resources to do any of that. So let, we'll tell you what, uh, Diana, you want to start an urban farm? Go ahead. <laughs> we, we, we won't enforce these rules right now. And we're going to learn from your experience doing it, what the rules should be. So rather so what than was do, the time frame, were you able to just. Yeah, like, let's get some hoses. Life? We'll get some water out there. And it was open within a couple of months. And we, we've, we've done that on several things. But it's an example when we say we're nimble and that sort of thing, it, it operationalizes in ways like that. Um, you can just but, jump in, try it, see how it works and kind of hone it as you go yeah, along. Learn by doing, which is how, you know, how uh, 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 in a small town, that's how you do everything. Um, I mean, you just don't, you never have the time to say, hey, for the next five years, let's work on this and let's spend three years on a plan. And then you just, that, that never pays off in a, in a, in a smaller town because you just, you can't count on the resources and, and all of that. And so uh, the extent to which you can just jump. And if you can't jump, then maybe put that aside and work on something else for, for a minute until the jumping moment um, arrives. That's exciting. Okay, I've got some questions coming in that are so much smarter than what I thought of. So let's let's look at some of these. Um, and Renee, you're being quiet. How can you address the role that housing has on the small town feeling? Is one of our questions. It's a it's a huge role. It's the ability for your community to, you know, have. A, maintain a place, a sense of place for themselves. Uh, and I think, so it's an incredible role. It also can be very frustrating when you can't bring the development in or you can't build the houses that leads to some of the overcrowding and some of the other challenges that we face here on a daily basis. Uh, so, you know, for us, if we had, if we've done a better job on the housing side, you know, that would kind of allow some folks to breathe. And, um, you know, I talked a little bit about dreaming for the potential. Lack of housing gets in the way of that, no matter how well you're doing everywhere else. You know, when we have people living in our garages in our, and uh, we show up on, on Saturday evening because somebody reported it, it's not a safe situation to live in, but you don't ask them to leave. You try to work with them. Um, so I think it's an incredible need for small communities to have adequate housing. It's a challenge to get there. And it's been a challenge for the last couple of decades. We're trying to work on it. We're, you know, we don't like, I think the mayor, we don't have really an opportunity just to complain because we'll get it thrown right in our face immediately. So it's, it's you, we got to figure it out. Doesn't mean we're successful all the time. So, but it's an incredible asset that small towns have housing, the housing they need. 
Well, because and, even and if a they diversity, have a job in a bigger and the city, diversity, right? A, a, a diversity of housing is so because one of the things that distinguishes a small town from a suburb, mm -hmm. at least done right. I know the, the, that kind of the the thing that we like to say about our town is that we have we have a place to live for everybody at every stage of life. Yes, that's um, good. and. And so a lot of suburbs don't like a, a lot of our wealthier suburbs, they're all five bedroom houses and they're designed for folks who are between 30 and 70 or 30 and 50 with kids and make $300,000. So it's only good for that. If you're if you're uh, coming home from the Air Force or you just retired, it's horrible. Um, but we're, we're trying to be a place for for everyone at all those different stages. And that's even harder because there are a lot of developers who love building gigantic tracts of, sub, of suburban homes. But in a smaller town, it's it's harder to attract um, the different kinds of housing that bring it place to life and that cause your kids to want to come back home in the first place. And how about the walkability and the cultural centers? We've got a question about that. Um, how can a, how can you make a town have that center, that cultural center, the, the walkability, the place that you want to be? Um, I'll, I'll take a stab at you. You observe you simply watch what your community, where your community goes and where they revolve around. The, you know, the centers, a lot of times, they tell you where they're at. So it's really understanding what, where your community kind of gravitates and goes to, as opposed to this huge study, kind of, you know, going by, you know, the, the, taking out the playbook and going through the checklist. So it's observing your community, listening, um, and then you try to activate around that. We did a joint museum with the school in an area where it's gonna, where now the community revolved around last year, passed the half cent sales tax to fund a community center complex in that location, which they that's where they go. Um, you knew so, where they already were walking yes, around or yes. getting. So yeah, yeah. in a smaller town, it, I think it's easier to kind of identify those uh, and to really try to involve the community kind of involves itself. They, they yeah. Want I always think of it like a, almost like a soap opera or something. Like there has to be that one place that every scene, that everybody, every character is going to run into <laughs> each other at some point that small towns have to have that. So you're saying you find that point yes. and then yes. build around it. Okay. Um, Megan, what's the most innovative thing you've seen come out of a small town? Well, that's a good question. And, and as we're thinking, with the mind, that's one of these that are coming in. But yeah, that is a good question. <laughs> it's a good question to whoever posed it. Um, and it sort of takes me back to Christopher's very insightful comment that some of our towns are too small to know what's impossible. I hadn't thought about it that way. But, you know, in Coachella, we were the first city in the nation to ban private prisons. Uh, as a type of, of use. And I think that'd be controversial in a lot of places, but it was like, without thinking we did that. Uh, we we're also the first and still the only city to implement hazard hero pay for farm workers. Um, so those are some you know, innovative things that I think we did because we didn't know they were impossible, even though those are sort of smaller symbolic uh, items. But I really go back to- How much was that hazard pay? It was an extra $4 per hour for four months. Wow. Yeah, uh, we were very proud of that. Uh, it, it received a lot of opposition from the agricultural industry, which was anticipated. Um, but, you know, farm worker families are really at the root of our city and all of us five council members 
uh, either grew up in farm working families or feel very connected to that aspect of our of our community um, in many ways. And so it was, you know, it was a decision that we made and it was the right decision, but we might not have been able to do that. We probably wouldn't have been able to do that in a bigger city. And it hasn't been done anywhere else in the country, uh, probably for that same reason. But thinking about innovative solutions, I want to go back to this water filtration uh, issue in the eastern rural, eastern uh, Coachella Valley. The wells in those communities are often contaminated by arsenic and nitrates uh, and even sewage because of the lack of septic system. And there's just no uh, really feasible short-term or even long-term plan to get those communities connected to municipal water service. And the um, traditional filtration systems that existed in the past also were un unaffordable. They could be like over a million dollars for a community of only a few people. Um, and so working with the nonprofit leaders in this in the Eastern Coachella Valley, including especially one called Pueblo Nido Community Development Corporation, we looked at what is the other technology that exists in water to, in, in water filtration and why is that technology not permitted uh, as an interim solution? And once we could look at those factors, you know, we could go to our elected state leaders and also the Department of Public Health and say, can we get this permitted? Because the alternative is to have you know, thousands or hundreds of people, depending on the community size, uh, with no water source at all. And so, you know, that was a tremendous achievement for the Eastern Coachella Valley. And it's also been now implemented in places like the San Joaquin and Central Valley communities that also have the water contamination issues. Wow, so I'm really proud of that. People from the Central Valley getting in touch with you. <laughs> yeah, well, we're in touch with a lot of them too. So. Okay, so. I mean, we're going, we're all, you're such different communities and such different concerns. I mean, Megan's talking about a, the basic human right of, of water to drink. Renee, Christopher, you guys get to, I guess you have the luxury of thinking a little bit um, farther down the line. And, I, and I'm wondering, oh, here we've got a question that's right along the lines of what I was wondering. Has created, have you thought of creating extension campuses of large higher education opportunities into places like Gonzales or Soledad or? So we have, uh, for example, next, next to Gonzales, the Soledad, which you mentioned, our junior college is building a campus there that we all support it. So, so that's happening. We created a uh, connection with California State University Monterey Bay. Um, and so they helped our youth through the mental health uh, services, some of the work they did there. So we're intentionally trying to bring them here um, to create the connection with higher ed and the, the city and the community. Um, so we are looking at that. And uh, I think the uh, campus and all of that the Harnell's building. I'm on the I'm on the Harnell uh, Foundation Board. Our uh, our council is really engaged with the junior college, and so we're we're re we're trying to leverage our local higher higher ed institutions to come into our community. And so, if, so if you get those houses, you'll have the education. Do you think your kids will come back? I think so. We uh, we keep hearing a lot of youth wanting to come back, um, and so. You know, they go off, they explore. I, kind of, I think we kind of all did that. I did it growing up, but these towns have a way of sort of dragging, bringing you back. 
particularly if you know you solve some of the infrastructure challenges that we we all face at times. Uh, Christopher, did did that help? Um, because you've had, I mean, you've been able to see it go from a small town to something that everybody else here is a little bit skeptical. We're going to call a small town. <laughs> <laughs> did that have a lot to do with it? Bringing bringing that energy back, bringing the young people back? Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, in, in Parkins, it's a, that's a marker of so much else, right? It's so, so yes, it's the- it's Did the, you have that? Well, I should back up. Did you have the exodus of the young people? We did. Th those who, those who, who left, you know, whether the military or college or otherwise, often mostly did not come back. Um, and now the, the, the last data I saw from Harvard was we have one of the highest return rates of any of any community in the greater Sacramento region, um, and that's the that's both a function of a lot of different things, but it's also um, it also drives a lot of things. So that's partly: uh, do we have housing? Do we have places to have fun? Uh, do we have places? Do you feel safe? Is this somewhere where you would raise your own child and start a family of your own? It's like everything that you care about in a small town. In some ways, the best barometer of that is people. People who grew up here, do they want to come home? Do they see that a whole life ahead of them in your town? And so that's it's a it's a it's a and it's one of the reasons why like one of the very first things I did when I became mayor 22 years ago was to work on bringing a college here, bringing the local community college to have a campus here, because uh, we our college rates were really low. The college was like offering classes at our local high school, but it's totally random. And they were about to close it down because they said nobody, no, you know, Mayor, hey, no, nobody in West Sacramento really is interested in higher education. So we're going to close down the program. I said, no, nobody's nobody's interested in like taking a Spanish course today and a computer science course next week and an art class the next week. They they want to they want to get a program. They want to get a degree or a certificate or a license or something. You're not yeah. you're not offering that. You need what well, you need to double down. And to their credit, the Sacramento City College and Los Rios Community College did do that and opened a full blown campus um, right in our right in our new downtown. And it's been a game changer for that sense of opportunity for partnerships with the high school in a sense that this could that this was a place that was a great place to grow up and a, a great place to raise a family. So listening to all of you tonight about, you know, what can make a, a, a small town good seems to me that you've kind of just talked about what makes life good. So you have to have the basic necessities, you have to have water. And then after that, what you need opportunity, you need something that makes your children want to come home, you need some fun, you need a place to live. Um, and you need a place that everybody meets. I, I think after the pandemic, we know how nice it is to run into people that you didn't set out to run into that you might not even know all that well, but a sense of community and just bumping into faces, you know. Um, I mean, I think you guys are talking about life in general, but let's get back to small towns. Maybe did I miss anything, Christopher? When when somebody's trying to make a small town better, I don't think. I mean, I think you're 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 so right about this. Like it's it's just about life um, in 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 so many ways. And uh, but and I think most small towns are not really very good at this, right? We're, we are we're, we're trapped in the well. Just don't make it. Don't change anything. Or you know, hey, new mayor, just don't mess it up. Um, or you know, we've already tried that a hundred times. That'll never work. Right? The, for many many small towns are defeated. And so like, when I see Renee, when I see Megan, I'm seeing you know small town leaders that are breaking through, busting through, and figuring it out. 
but also demonstrating how how casually possible it is for lots of small towns and then for bigger cities to look and say, hey, maybe we don't need to spend three years studying this. Maybe, <laughs> maybe as Renee says, maybe instead of hiring consultants to figure out where where the next big place is, why don't we just open our eyes and and open our ears a little bit, right? That that the, that uh, so small towns were neither you know were neither a, bu a bundle of deficits. But we're also we're also we shouldn't be romanticized as like we're perfect either. Right. That, that we're we have our own struggles. But I think what we're seeing from communities like Gonzalez and Coachella, and I, and I hope mine too, is that that there is a way uh, to borrow Renee's term. There is a path forward for small towns to to make the best of both the, that that sense of intimacy and connection and collision that you're describing, Diana, along with the the capacity um, and the ability to really deliver on transformative change. And there's some things for the for the big cities to learn, like maybe a few less task force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing I would add to that, Diana, is at least job creation. So whether, how do you leverage what you do well? For us as ag, is the center, ag tech, uh, over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, 2,000 new jobs have been created here in the community. It's bringing people from the outside, but also folks from our community. Uh, but if you can't do that, look around you. Can you can you leverage opportunity? Can you help your community leverage opportunities somewhere else? Uh, and so I think that's another piece of us. What makes a, any town great? I mean, life, right? Can you need? Right. A, I I I've often said, you know, we have a pretty good sustainability initiative here, but how does that put food on the table? How does that improve life? Nobody wants to destroy the world, but what does that mean when you're farm worker? When you're work, you have you're not never home. Your kids are by themselves. You're literally going paycheck to paycheck. How does all these policies and all these things that we big issues, how does that affect me directly? And I think that small towns are able to make that connection, I think, or I don't know if it's easier, but I think that connection is more readily apparent if you can leverage it. Is it uh, maybe so. more real instead of theoretical? Yes, I think so. Uh, I, I may have said it forever. We don't have five, six, seven years to. We've tried the study that we spent and it went nowhere. <laughs> you know, it's on the shelf, and it's kind of like, no, we're not going to do that again. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't need. We don't need a study to tell us people want housing, people want education, people want clean water. You know, people want opportunity. We don't need to have study after study tell us that. Um, and so, I think job creation, to the extent you can help that as well, it's but all, it's also important. Megan, anything else that you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I kind of want to build off that just with a personal point of view, because I'm thinking about, you know, why is it that I never went back to my small town hometown? Um, and I think a big, you know, some of those elements of a good, a good small town are in place in terms of the basic necessities and the relationships. Um, and so forth. But there's in my hometown, small town um, in Iowa, there's really a lack of opportunities for people who are wanting to grow into different professions or to find uh, economic growth or um, progression in their lives. And so, you know, they're in my hometown, like for someone like me who wanted to become a lawyer or for others who have grown into other types of professions uh, and futures, there was no place for us to come home and continue, you know, with those visions and those dreams. So for me, the choice was to find basically a new home. Um, and I went 
almost as far as I could feasibly go away from Iowa, unfortunately, because I miss my family. But Coachella, the way that it's been growing over the years, has started to provide a lot of those opportunities. And I think we're increasingly seeing uh, residents, you know, who are going off to school or maybe going through their adventurous years, but coming back to Coachella, both because there is some job growth and some newer uh, professional opportunities in the city, but also, as Renee was alluding to, and I think Christopher as well, we have the proximity to other cities and other job uh, centers that still make it feasible for Coachella residents to come home um, and still, you know, live out their, their dreams and to grow economically and professionally. And so that's, that's really key, I think. So we have to close. I'm, I'm actually pretty bummed. This has been such an optimistic, hope-filled conversation. You know, the fact that you can make the place you are better instead of having to leave. And if you do leave, you can work for a town and try to make it a place that other people don't have to leave. Um, and you guys have all done innovative, creative things using basically personal relationships that are fostered in a smaller town. So thank you for that. And thanks for your time tonight. Um, I want to thank everyone, especially the people watching. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sending your very smart questions. Thank you as well to Zucola Public Square and the California Wellness Foundation for presenting this important conversation. And to, again, just thank you everyone for joining us. This video will stay public online and you'll also be able to find a summary of our talk, plus interviews on, um, with all the panelists on Zucola's website which is Z-O-C-A-L-O publicsquare.org. And um, you can find them. So I hope Coachella people who need water find Megan. If you enjoyed this event, be sure to tune in next event on Thursday, which is June 24th at 5.30 PM. They're gonna be talking about how have women's sports changed since Title IX. And if you're on the go, you can listen to the podcast and subscribe to the newsletter for updates. Thank you guys. Thank you all for such an interesting, optimistic, hopeful conversation when we could all use that. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.